1: Plushcare.com/slash/weight-loss.
2: Welcome to the DFO Rundown podcast with Frank Saravali and Jason Greger on DailyFaceOff.com,
3: delivered by DoorDash. Welcome to
4: episode 130 of the DFO Rundown. I'm Jason Greger, along with uh, Frank Valley. We're both in Calgary, just in uh, different locations. Uh, too early for any of us to uh, drive across town. Frankie, how you doing?
2: I am good. Just uh, can't wait for game two. I feel like we're going to learn a lot about the Oilers in this Battle of Alberta.
4: Well, uh, game one, if if people liked entertainment, it had the range of emotions, I think, for both fan bases, Um, you could sense it in the building. The flame fans were uh, were orgasmic early in the game, (laughs) thinking that uh, this is the greatest game they've ever seen. And uh, oiler fans, of course, dejected. And then in the second period, all of a sudden, Edmonton scores four consecutive goals, uh, including early in the third. And uh, the, the Flame fans suddenly were nervous and the order fans were excited. And then Calgary came back. So from a, a range of emotion, I think for a fan, uh, you can't get any better. Uh, obviously, I think Jay Woodcroft, uh, safe to say, Frank, um, there would be no shortage of video on how not to play defense.
2: Yeah, but frankly, I, I would think that there were certainly some glaring errors for the Calgary Flames to clean up as well. I mean, you look at that opportunity, Matthew Kachuk said they played their worst 15 to 20 minutes of the entire season, not the playoffs, the entire season in game one. Two different four-goal leads for the Flames. Markstrom didn't look great. Um, but when you look at you know the Oilers and, and a lot of the different things that they're going to have to overcome this series if they want to win, you know, you can get a better start from Mike Smith. You can handle the physicality of the Oilers or excuse me, of the flames and their forecheck a lot better. You can play cleaner in the neutral zone. You and I talked during the intermission, just how sloppy they were getting through the neutral zone and you can do all that, but I just don't know. And I have serious questions and concerns about the Edmonton Oilers and their injuries. You've got two of their top three players in dry Seidel and Darnell nurse that are really banged up. Like nurse may be more hurt than the odd And for a team that is not nearly as deep as Calgary, they rely on the Oilers. No secret. It's no news flash. The Oilers rely on their stars more than just about any other team. And to have those two guys in particular, you know, be that banged up Darnell nurse played 18 minutes in game one. His season average is 25. He didn't throw one hit. He was minus three. Um, you know, both of those guys have been taken off one of their special teams units. Dry didn't play a single second shorthanded nurse didn't play a single second on the power play. It, It just gives you an indication of just how injured these guys actually are.
4: Yeah, Nurse specifically for me, I really wonder if they, they play Brett Kulak with Cody Ceci now and play them the tough minutes because Kulak did that role in game six against LA and just because Nurse isn't healthy and then you could play Nurse with Tyson Berry and, and play them in more offensive roles. Now, Nurse really, since uh, Dave Manson took over, he hasn't beat on the power play. They took him off uh, in mid-February and basically let Bouchard and Keith do it. But uh, you're right, like his minutes are down significantly. His inability to engage with guys can Consistently is what's very noticeable to me. And that's obviously all comes from the injury. Like, uh, you know, he was top 10 in hits all year amongst defensemen. So it's obvious that he's got an injury. And and I agree with you, Frank. I think his injury is limiting him more than Dreisaitl. But uh, I saw Dreisaitl, uh walk into the press room after game one. And now that was after treatment. So maybe things are more tender and sensitive, but uh, he was walking very gingerly and tenderly. It's it's clear. Everybody knows anybody who saw the video knows he's hurting. And so you're right. That might be too much to overcome. Um, but the orders, you know, they overcame a, you know, no Darnell nurse in game six, they overcame an injured dry subtle and nurse in game seven. So they've shown they can at least play better defensively. You can't like, they were so bad in every facet. Like they, they honestly could not complete a pass early in that first period. Like it was it was mind-blowing. So I expect him to be better. Uh, I'm curious about Jacob Markstrom though, Frank. Uh, there was so much talk about Smith and Koskin. Jacob Markstrom allowed six goals on, fifth, on 21 shots and three of them came uh, Kevin Woodley pointed out the changes in Markstrom's game where they made him less busy in the net. Yet if there's one area where he's uh, susceptible is when you come down the wing and you shoot glove or blocker just above the pad because of the different motion. And we saw three of the Goals go right there. So obviously I think that's a scouting report that they've looked at and we'll see uh, how that plays out the rest of the series.
2: Yeah. I agree with you that there's the Oilers can clean it up. There's no doubt, but they survived game six and game seven against a, an inferior yes. opponent yes, to totally the Flames. Fair. Yeah. And it's a lot different to try and do that in a seven game series. And so I, I wonder. Jay Woodcroft hinted on Thursday, that there may be some lineup changes, you know, do you go Warren Fogel uh, up front? Do you go, you know, do you bring in Philip Broberg on the back end? Like Broberg is a guy that, you know, obviously is lacking in experience, but he can skate. And when you can skate and you're trying to get out of that pressure that the flames are creating, maybe that helps you a little bit in your own end.
4: Yeah, uh, I think Fogel's in for sure. Uh, the, the the Broberg one, I agree with you. The skating ability, there's the experience. We'll see. The other wild card, and I'm not sure it happens in game two, Frank, but if Edmonton loses game two, when they get at home ice, I do wonder if they contemplate inserting rookie uh, Dylan Holloway. It would be his first NHL games, but he's really fast and big and at home, Jay Woodcroft could at least protect him a little bit, right? Like some people have thought, oh, put him with Nugent Hopkins and Ryan, and I'm like, the problem with that is they have most of the defensive zone starts. I'm not a putting a rookie on that line. If if I'm putting him in, I'm putting him in a situation where, you know, he's not going to get a ton of defensive zone starts. I just, I I don't think that's the best way to initiate a rookie in his first NHL games.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. you. You mentioned his name though. Can we talk for a second about Ryan Nugent Hopkins and how bad he was at game one, like such a pivotal player in this series. I think when you look at how this all breaks down, the different contributions that he makes to every unit, the Oilers can't afford to have games like that from Nuge if they want to be successful in the series hundred percent hit
4: on the second goal. they had multiple turnovers. Um, you know, and the one thing that's got to improve for the orders was their power play. And, and I guess that was maybe a, a microcosm of their inability to pass the puck because they just, they didn't move the puck quick enough and, and Calgary pressured them all over the ice. And then, and really I thought Edmonton lost momentum when they were on the man advantage. So, uh, they've got a lot to turn around, but the thing is the flames feel they can play way better too. And they scored nine goals. So, um, the reason I picked Calgary to win the series, Frank, at the start was I, I think the injuries, as you've alluded to two uh, are too much, you know, if, if both those guys are hundred percent healthy, you know, then it would be maybe closer to a pick'em series for me. But, uh, I, I think Edmonton is definitely in a hole now. It doesn't mean they can't come back historically for that organization. They haven't been great in game one, funny enough, right? Like they're 24 and 23 and they don't win a lot of game one. So, you know, we'll see if
2: they bounce back in that. But you, you um, mentioned, and you talked to, to, you asked Jay Woodcroft to think a little bit about this on Thursday was they can't, they got to start better six out of eight games in the playoffs. Like it's, it's a recipe for disaster. Um, You know, I, I just, I don't know. I, I wish in some ways I could get a do over on my pick because until seeing it firsthand in person, how much Darnell nurse is laboring, I did not have any clue that he was that injured. And I actually wondered if there was any chance that in game one, that he got re injured because he was still even down three and a half minutes from his round one, series ice time average to then be only at 18 minutes in game one. It, something just is it's off.
4: Yeah, no, it's, it's totally fair. And, um, you know what, uh, injuries at the key time we saw with Colorado, Frank, in a few years, uh, injuries can derail a team, especially if it's to key players. And, you know, uh, we'll see Edmonton, uh, they got to battle back. They got to play better in so many areas. Um, at bare minimum, their starts though, Frank, the flames were the best starting team in the NHL this year. They scored first 54 times. The orders were 30th, at thirty-three, like that's a massive gap. And you know, Edmonton is fifty percent. They're four and four, scoring first in the playoffs so far. But it's not just scoring first; it's a complete start. Like no elements of their game
2: were ready in game one. Yeah, it's uh, oof, it's going to be interesting. How about uh, the Rangers about the lost the Panthers? Okay. Well, I was going to say the Panthers. Like you know, if, if you're looking at that team down to nothing to the two-time defending Cup champs,
3: are they done? Gosh, it's,
4: and they're going to on, to on the road now. Like, what a gutting loss that you can't get the puck out. Like, Frank, we've talked about this. Coaches, they hammer on it. Three feet from your blue line. Get the puck out. And then the final 15 seconds. ugh! like what a pass by Kucherov, by the way. And what a finish by Ross Colton. Like, that's a legit. Like, he didn't just, you know, tap it in. He roof daddied it. Ugh. You know, with all sorts of uh velocity. I love that he shot to score at that key time is a huge goal in the game. Originally it said point nine seconds on the clock, and then I think they changed it to like 3.9. But yeah, Tampa looks really good, Frank. I don't can the Panthers win four out of five? It's possible, but I, I think it's highly unlikely. I think they're done.
3: Yeah.
2: sucks because I, I picked them. Yeah, it just they just haven't looked themselves all playoffs. And we had no. questions about this team and their ability to translate their game from regular season to playoffs. And they've struggled with that, but they've also looked nervous. Like they've looked, you know, I, I used the word yesterday in the daily Faceoff show. They looked a little choky like they, they just not, not good. And for a team that had, has come back a lot, you now have to win four out of the last five games against the two time defending champs that have won 19 in a row coming off of a loss over the last three years. Like, I don't know. Tampa just looks, they look like they're in the zone now. Oh yeah.
4: Yeah. It's a uh, hard to overcome But You look like that's like Edmonton's loss. Zach Hyman said easy to you just move on because you're so bad. But Florida that's a gut-wrenching loss in game two and what about the Rangers loss in game one Frank on the same night you had complete opposite games. Edmonton and Calgary it was all offense and the Rangers for the first four like they played unreal. They completely controlled that game and then even in the third period I know Ajo hit a post but Capo Caco had the game on his stick with six minutes left. He had a wide open net and I we a a lot of times I think we, we, we don't focus enough on forwards. That's your job to finish. If a goalie screws up and it's obvious, he gets ripped on like Capo Caco. I'm sorry. The, the kid line played great, but the games on your stick there, you got to put that into the net. Like there's no excuse. And obviously it came back to bite them. And then a little bit unlucky on the, on the own goal deflection off of miller's Miller stick. But like, I think that's a tough one for the Rangers to overcome because for two thirds of that game, they really controlled it.
2: Yeah, that's why I think it's just one game because they controlled it. And by the way, their top line with Zabanajad and Panarin, they were not good. No. So the fact that they were able to control with those guys not being good, you know, yes. You know, when you have a lead like that, you've got to be able to close out a game. But it's a, I think it's going to be a long series. And if last round showed us anything with the Rangers that they have the ability to to make adjustments, one and and overcome too and and you look at um really their ability to get to the net in the first two periods of of game one it was a vast difference from the first few games of round one so i see some positive signs and you mentioned the kid line the kid line you know they've got all sorts of confidence now like they have we were we were saying all year long on the pod they just need one of. Lafreniere or Kako to step up and that they've both stepped their game up, especially in the postseason when it's harder to do. So full marks to them, if anything, um, the Rangers stars who showed up in a big way in game six and seven, they have they've had very quiet moments throughout the playoffs so far. So they need them to be better. Shesterkin has been better, which is a huge positive. And when you're looking at that goalie matchup, like, I'm taking Shesterkin over Ranta every, every day of the week. Oh, so yeah. they're, you know, I think the Canes, uh, it's going to be really interesting if the Rangers can take game two, heading back to the garden, having home ice. I think they're in a pretty decent spot.
4: Yeah, that, hey, that, you know what? It's, it's the perfect uh, pre-gameer for uh, for us out west to get to watch that game. I love it. Um, now, I don't. I watched it last night, Frank. Man, the Colorado St. Louis series, the Blues. I give them a lot of credit, man. They played excellent yesterday. The Abs, right afterwards, they weren't happy with their game. They say, hey, you know what? We didn't have a lot of guys going, and, and that's fair. But I thought I give St. Louis credit that I felt they they looked like a team that had a lot of guys, Frank, who won the cup a few years ago, and they played a poised, complete. game game. They, they didn't, I don't think they really were ever in trouble. Other, even when Atlanta uh, made it two to one, they didn't allow Colorado to build on that momentum and, and use the home crowd to their favor. I, I thought that was a really good 60 minute effort for the blues last night.
2: I know that a coach can't win the Smythe, but Craig Ruby has made some incredible adjustments from series to series, game to game, you know, you take a look at, at him breaking up the Bucinevich line and sprinkling those guys throughout the top three lines. Um, that was a pretty big adjustment for game two. And not only that, but obviously they were able to way cut down on Colorado's shots. They've done a really good job of, of mitigating or at least trying to stifle as much as you can. The offense that's created from Kale McCarr, Um, McCarr and McKinnon combined for zero goals in the first two games. Those guys were otherworldly against the Preds different opponents. Sure. But for a team that looked like as you got to overtime in game one, they were just hanging on for dear life that they, you know, they're alive They're and they're, they're going back home to St. Louis all square after handing the abs, their first loss of the postseason.
4: No, I, I, I thought this was going to be a long series at the start. And the first two games uh, show me no reason why it won't be. And uh, you know what uh, that uh, for anybody on the East coast, maybe who hasn't watched it, I recommend staying up late because that is a series worth watching. You know, there's lots of stars on, on Colorado. St. Louis just has so many veterans like David Perron just continues. Frank, like, <laughs> like
2: he gets better as he gets older. It's amazing. Such a smart player. Four multi-point games so far in the playoffs, nine points in the first round five goals in the first round adds another two in game two. Like I said, it's part of it is the adjustment though. Like that line looks a little different when you sprinkle in, you know, Buchnevich and Thomas and, and the other guys that are now throughout the lineup. Like it, it just, it gave them a different dimension and pretty critical.
4: And uh, for anybody who doesn't know Jordan Cairo, he's good. He is. He wow. he might be the the, the least talked about
2: skilled player in the NHL. He's. Excellent from start to finish in his game. He's got so many different components to it. Um, You know, you saw the ability for him to get shots off in, in throughout the playoffs, but especially in game one, like he's just a talented guy. Yeah, it is good. And uh,
4: you mentioned McKinnon and McCarr, Frank, you know, eventually they're going to go off. So uh, that's what's uh, exciting uh, about that series. Uh, we, are, we are going to have Craig McTavish on the uh, pod today. Of course, a uh, uh, four-time Stanley Cup winner, a uh, former head coach, GM. So we'll get his thoughts on, uh, I want. I really want to pack his uh, his coaching brain into the Battle of Alberta. So we'll get to that and hear some stories from the old BOA.
0: But uh, let's welcome in Tyler Uremchuk. Ty, how are you, man? I am doing good. I wish I was in Calgary. I'm a little bit jealous of you guys. It looks... Uh, it looks pretty nice behind you there, but that building just looked absolutely rocking on, oh, on Wednesday. It night. was, man. I thought it
2: was actually a little disappointing in game one. And, and like, because just there was so much hype of yeah, Oh, funny. the dome's going to be wild. Maybe it's just the part of the game that you explained, Jay, off the top, where like, you know, it was such a frenzied start. And then they're like, oh my God, are we really blowing mm-hmm. this lead? And they kind of sat on their hands a bit. I was expecting, like, I've been in some amazing playoff buildings, seen a lot of cup finals. And, um, and you know, for me, it's, you know, it's always still Montreal is louder than anywhere else. I, it was, it was good. It was really good. It wasn't like the best I've ever heard in terms of environment.
4: I thought the first five minutes, it was crazy. And then what I liked in the second actually was the dueling, uh, the dueling chance between the uh, order fans and the uh, flame fans. I always kind of liked that. The order fans were trying to get the go orders, go chant and the flames fans were counting with orders suck." So it was actually that, that was the only thing that that kind of chuckled, but there was a lot of tension, Frank from midway through the second. And after that, the flame fans didn't, they weren't as confident as they were in the first 30 minutes. It was a understandably
2: with the goals that Markstrom was letting in and also yeah you know, the best chant of the night was still, we want 10. That was with, uh, that was, they first started that after the third goal goal. Yeah. And I was like, Whoa, like, like, are they serious? And then later we're like, Oh yeah, that's, that's legit.
0: (laughs) All right. Let's get into your fill in the blank questions. All one word answers today. We're calling it the speed run of fill in the blank. So starting with what you guys have discussed a little already, I want one word to describe game one of the battle of Alberta, Jason.
4: Unexpected.
0: All right. Frank. Mayhem. Mayhem. I like it. Jason not dipping back to the word orgasmic. Interesting choice. Uh, number two, one word to describe Brady Kachuk cheering on his brother at all these flames games, Frank.
2: Damn. I should have picked this word to start to describe game one and it could have encompassed Brady as well. I'm going to go with drunk. <laughs> Jay.
4: I think it's perfect. You should, man, that's your best friend, your brother. Damn right. you should be perfect. celebrating
0: all these fun sponges that are upset about it. Grab a clue. What's wrong with these people? I know, right? All right. Number three, the Florida Panthers power play still doesn't have a goal. One word to describe the Panthers power play being goalless through eight playoff games. Jason lethargic. Yeah. Frank lost. Lost and it may lose them their playoffs yeah. as well. When you look at the fact it blew said it up. costly because yeah. that's what it's going to do, it's going to cost yeah. them the series. All right, number four one word to describe the Panthers' chances of coming back in this series, Frank. One, <laughs> as in percent, I'd assume, Jason. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Zero. Whew. Not giving the comeback cats any love. That's your Stanley cup pick Jay. I know it's painful for me to say that. Uh, Sorry, Florida. Sorry. Fifth one, one word to describe the St. Louis blues chances in this series. Now that it's one, one heading back to St. Louis, Jason. Legit. All right. Frank. 20. 20. All right. That's also one word. I'll give it to you. Uh, we're going to wrap this one up with our points bet bonus question. Shout out to points bet Canada live now in Ontario. If you want to get in on the playoff action, we had, what was it? 15 goals in game one of the BOA. The over under is set at six and a half tonight. I, I might be taking that over, but anyways, I want to know how many goals do you think we're getting tonight, Frank?
4: Seven. Seven. Four, three, something like that. All right. You took my answer. I'll say eight. I, I agree. I think there's, this is still an over series. I don't think we're suddenly going to have two, one games here.
0: Yeah. Seven or eight goals. That would be tightening it up. Although I don't think either head coach would be too thrilled with it. Uh, that's going to do it for another edition of fill in the blank delivered by our friends at DoorDash. promo code rundown DD gets you 25% off and no delivery fees on your first order. Ding dong. Uh, we are recording this live this morning this part of the pod, it's
4: seven fifty-seven Calgary time. I'm looking out my window. It's snowing. So that's what kind of Friday it is. Frank, I, I'm a little West of you. I'm a little higher up in elevation, yes. but it's, it's coming to downtown. It's coming. I'm just looking out the window. Like I can take a picture and post it. Like this is unreal,
2: but may long. Should weekend we send in a Alberta. News? I was, should we send a news flash? Like guys, it's spring. Like, I didn't pack properly for
4: this. This this is Alberta, Frank, on the odd May long weekend. But once every five years, you get some snow. Um, it's just how it goes.
3: So uh,
4: it's been a long time. So maybe some forget. And uh, I know uh, yesterday we had a little bit of technical issues, uh, Frank. But I was able to uh, record uh, Craig McTavish, the uh, former uh, Edmonton Order, New York Ranger, where he won Stanley Cups. Uh, of course, uh, played with the Blues. And uh, we talked about the, the Battle of Alberta. We got I really tapped into his coaching mind uh, today on the pod. very excited to have on the dfo rundown today he's a four-time stanley cup champion he uh, played in over 1080 nhl hockey games including uh, over 100 in the nhl playoffs he went on to be an nhl head coach as well as a, an nhl general manager and now he is an nhl analyst craig mctavish joins us maxi how
3: you doing uh, i'm good gregs thank you what what's dfo stand for uh Daily face off. Daily face off. Okay. I'm on that site lots, but, uh, never heard it. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's it's probably not the best name if
4: we're being blunt. So, uh, yeah, yeah, we might have to look at rebranding that, but, uh, the rundown, that's what it is. We stuck with it. So, uh, away we go. Hey, um, All right. I, I want to get your thoughts. Of course, on, uh, you know, you played lots of your coach, but in the Battle of Alberta, I want to start there uh, as a player. And um, you obviously played in in the playoffs against the Flames. Um, There was lots of intensity and emotion. The game is very different now, but I was looking at the playoff games and they they did seem there wasn't as much uh, shenanigans might not be the word, but guys played really hard and there was huge hits. But there seemed to be a little bit more control of emotions. Is that fair?
3: Yeah, there's lots at stake, obviously, in the playoffs. You don't want to get loose and uh take take penalties. I mean, that's not a recipe for for success. But I I, I remember big hits, especially Jeff Bookaboom. I mean Book would just he he, he he took a lot of pride in uh punishing the Calgary Flames for a decade or so. And uh you know, but both teams knew what was at stake. Both teams, uh, in my mind and a lot of other people's minds, they were, we were the best two teams in the league back then. And uh, we knew what was at stake and you, ha- you, had to, you had to be disciplined to win.
4: Was there somebody on the, on the flames during those years for you that you just despised, that you felt like there was a, a, an individual rivalry?
3: Well, the guy I battled most against maybe two guys would be Joel Otto, for sure, because we took a lot of faceoffs offs uh, against one another, and he, he was a formidable opponent. I mean, he was a hard-nosed guy, and, uh, you know, he's, he stretched the boundaries of your courage, that's for sure. <laughs> and the, the other guy that I battled against was Gary Roberts at, at times. So, I mean... Those guys were kind of in my weight category back in those days. And, uh, you know, you had to punch to your, punch to your weight category for sure. Um, I didn't get involved in Hunter, and I knew that, and I'd verbally try and abuse him as much as I could. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it, it was uh, – it, 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 they weren't a lot of fun to play in, but in hindsight, they were the most memorable games that I was a part of.
4: You know, it's interesting. You're not the first guy who said that, that um, from the outside, the fans absolutely loved it. But. Um, like there was a Dave Lumley, I think once said he goes like, I honestly thought one of us might kill each other. Like it was so intense at times that it was just, especially in the regular season, you face each other eight times and it was always trying to like, okay, can we, can we send one more extra message? Like, were there times when you're on the bench where it was just like, it wasn't fun or when you're in the moment it was like, oh, this is great. How, how was it for you? You know, when you see Hunter and Semenko and then Poplinski and there's line brawls, you know, back to back and you know, some games that you literally, or the next shift, you're fighting automatically?
3: Well, it, it was intense. I mean, it, it was you had to be ready to play because that's really you, the way you measured your worth to the rest of your teammates and, and your organization is how, how, how much you'd step up in those big games and those big physical games. I remember there was one game we got beat pretty handily in Calgary and then we had a back-to-back back in Edmonton. And, I mean, the first shift, it was a brawl. And uh, I got ejected from the game. Kevin Lowe got ejected from the game. And so we're one minute into the game and he and I are both in the dressing room. And I remember Kevin saying to me, man, were we ever on the same wavelength tonight? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but you just you, you, you had to. And, uh, you know, I, I'd, I'd rather deal with the Calgary Flames on the ice and Glenn Sather in the locker room if you didn't do it. <laughs> okay,
4: sure. So, yeah, as a guy who became a coach, Craig, what, what did you learn from from slats as a coach and and how you dealt with guys in and how they showed up at intense moments? What, what did you did that allow you as a coach to be better? Like how do you take that to know that okay, these are the guys I want on my team when crunch time comes?
3: Well, w- winners want accountability, and that's really what I learned from Glenn and uh you know, he, we had multiple superstars, obviously, well-documented, but everybody was held accountable in, in different ways. And, you know, winners really want that accountability. If somebody's not pulling their weight or doing their job or cutting corners, you know, as a player on a winning team, on a championship-caliber team, you want that addressed uh, by your coaching staff. And he, he had no problem doing that. And, uh, you you know, he, 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 uh, he, he was a great bench coach. He, I mean, obviously the first two lines were always going to play Messier and Gretzky's line were all always going to play, but there was a lot of internal competition between the third and fourth line because the fourth line was good. The third line was pretty good, but we knew going into the meat of the game into the last bit of the third period or even the third period that you know one line was going to be out of the mix and so that created internal competition which i thought was healthy and as a player you really want to play when you're when you're on when you have your legs when you're playing well you want that recognition from the coaching staff you want them to play in those situations and when conversely if you're off and don't have it that night, he recognized that too, and you'd be pasted to the bench.
4: So Craig, as players, um, you must hold each other very accountable at the same time. Did you, um, did you ever have a situation where somebody had to address a guy that you felt you know wasn't holding up his personal end of the bargain? did, did, you, like, did Messier or yourself or Gretzky do those conversations go on?
3: Kevin was normally the facilitator of all that stuff. Hmm. Okay. And, uh, he, he would, uh, go to Mark and they were, you know, obviously best of friends as Kevin and Wayne were. Uh, but Kevin would, he, he would go to Mark if something needed to be addressed and maybe Mark's voice carried more, uh, Wait at that time from from uh, Mark, but it was more a, a collective challenging than an individual challenging. I mean, there were times when individuals were challenged. Uh, it didn't happen very often, maybe two or three times in in my tenure here. But uh, more more a collaborative, collective challenging of the group to. You know, get better, dig in, play tougher, play harder, uh, be more disciplined, whatever the case called for.
4: Now, uh, Great. You came into Edmonton in 85, 86, and that's obviously one of the more memorable battles of Alberta. Not not for the orders uh, with the outcome, of course, of the infamous uh, Steve Smith play. But w- w- what did you learn when you came in quickly? Obviously, you'd been in the Eastern Conference. You'd seen the orders, of course. I'm sure you're well aware of them. But what surprised you most when you became a teammate? Of the orders in the mid
3: 80s well just just the inclusiveness of everybody i mean everybody was always included uh on and off the ice there were no clicks i mean when i first got here i moved in with kevin low for almost as soon as i got here you know it was it, it was just everybody would go out as a group Nobody was excluded. Sure, there were guys that didn't go, but they were always welcome to go. And uh, you know, they're really great people. Uh, I came from Boston, and it was a very close knit group too, as well. But winning happens for a reason, and especially when, when it's repeatable. I mean, they're in hindsight that was a pretty dedicated, close group of players, uh, that, that, uh, went through that era. And the great thing about playing on good teams is you can get rid of guys that don't fit mm. when, when, when you're on a good team, if guys come in and they just don't fit for whatever reason, I mean, they, they would be gone in a hurry.
4: Yeah, um, and so you could tell that right away. Because like, how long would it take to know if the guy was? And, and if they didn't fit in, what was it that didn't fit?
3: Well, their commitment mostly. I mean, there was a lot of characters. Everybody's uh, got their own personality, but when the when the game's on the line and you need that player the most, you you have to do things, uh, and. and your, your behavior has to suit the situation that's best for the team. And those things are painfully obvious when you're not, when your individual objectives supersede the objectives of the group. And that just, that can't happen. And any type of selfishness or, or poutiness uh, in crucial situations that you'd be gone pretty quick.
4: Um, uh, Craig, before we move into your coaching, of course you won the three Stanley cups with the orders. Um, you were part of the last battle of Alberta in 1991. Uh, there was the, uh, you know, the Theo Fleury slide in game six, and then the Essa uh, overtime winner in game seven. Um, can, can, you describe like, and you'd won Stanley cup. So you guys had probably learned how Everybody always said, don't get too high, don't get too low. I know it's a cliche, but I'm sure there's definitely some truth to it. But how did you react to after tough losses in the playoffs? How long like, did it take you to get over it? And did you learn to let it go quicker?
3: Well, I think that's, that's the responsibility of the coaching staff. They can let that loss linger. I, I mean, we seldom did that. Glenn was... Uh, would generally always speak at the end of the game. And I I like that personally as a player because I wanted to hear how he analyzed the game. And then and then you you address the issues, you talk about the shortcomings after a loss like that, uh and and then you move on. Um, Today's coach, they, they rarely address the team after the game, I find. But I, as a player, I used to, uh, the rare time Glenn didn't come in. I always was, we'd always be waiting in there for him to come in and put, uh, put, put a, uh, a wrap on, on the game. And then we'd come in the next morning and then we'd strategize on what we could do better. This is in the playoffs. We didn't do a lot of video in the regular season. Uh, but John Muckler was, uh, unbelievable at that time of uh, breaking down video and he had total credibility from the team uh, to, you know, input strategical changes and, uh, I mean, he had total buy-in from the leadership. We knew how bright John was uh, tactically and that was just an unbelievable coaching staff. John did the the tactical changes and adjustments. Ted green was an unbelievable person, great liaison between the players and the coaching staff, a lot of fun. And uh, Glenn was uh, in charge of accountability and uh, bench management. And he did a fantastic job of that. Obviously.
4: Now, why do you think today's coaches don't address um, the the teams right after the game? Is, Is there a reason why that's changed?
3: I think a lot of them are afraid of, uh, the immediacy of the emotion of, of a loss. And you can do, you have to be fearful of doing more damage than good. Okay. I think a lot of them are like that. Um, and they, they want to check the video out and, you know, the emotion that the, I mean, for anybody that's ever been in a coach's room after a loss, it's a pretty toxic area. And I mean, it's, 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 I don't think it's a productive uh, routine for coaches and everybody comes in and they've got their idea and they pick the players apart and so-and-so is no good and what's going on with him. And, you know, then you sleep on it and you come in with a much different perspective. Uh, The next day. But when I first went into the coach's room, I couldn't believe how toxic it was. And, uh, you know, I'm going, man, I can't believe the things I'm sure Glenn and Muck and Ted Green said about me over the years, uh, because it it is it it can get pretty, uh, pretty toxic in there.
4: So you, of course, uh, you finish your career, you won a, a Stanley Cup in New York as well, and then you finish out with Philly and St. Louis, and then you basically went right from the blues the next year as an assistant coach to the New York Rangers. Was there were you always, were you thinking coach late in your career, Craig? Were you a guy taking notes? and, and um, did, had you had those conversations with Slater uh, before he hired you?
3: Well, the last couple of contracts I had, I always had a coaching component. To my contract, so I I had if I signed another year, I had two years to start coaching to be an assistant coach uh, with Edmonton, and uh, you know so I was I was very much taking notes, drills, tactics that worked for me. I I I built a binder. I called it the Hockey Bible, and I still have it and still rely on it. When I was part of the, Edmonton Oil, or the New York Rangers in 94 I, and won the Cup in 94, I was actually offered the coaching job for the Edmonton Oilers after that season from Peter Pocklington and Glenn. And I chose to continue to play, but I always knew that I was going to get into coaching. Uh, I just never knew at that point how difficult coaching was. <laughs>
4: <laughs> so so what yeah so take me through you were an assistant coach uh, for, for three years two with the rangers uh, one with the orders and he became the head coach in 2000 what was the most difficult unexpected part of coaching for you
3: uh well i mean d- just the difference in the in the way you view the game from sitting on the bench to standing behind it it's about two feet in physical distance, but it's a lifetime of uh, of change. And I couldn't believe when I first stood behind the bench in New York in a preseason game, how fast everything was happening. And I kept thinking like, when I was sitting there, it wasn't happening this fast. But I mean, when you stand behind there, just how fast the game is. I mean, it slows down after a couple of games behind there. But I really was struck by, I mean, I I was struck by how fast it was and I was struck by the puck in the first game I was behind the bench. (laughs) I was going like, I can't even keep an eye on the puck. I got to get my changes out there and there's a lot going on and it's unfamiliar territory and sure enough, I get whacked by a puck coming into the bench. Uh, And I can assure you there's not a lot of empathy from the players when the coach gets hit in the head with a puck. (laughs) but, but yeah, things, things, uh, I mean, and, and meetings, conducting meetings, video meetings, getting comfortable doing that, that, that takes, that takes time. And, uh, you know, it, it, uh, I was so fortunate that I shared a very small office in New York with Bill Morris and, you know, Billy Yeah, and Billy has broken more coaches than, uh, then anybody, myself, Kelly Buckberger, Mark Lamb, Craig Simpson, everybody, it doesn't matter. They all gravitate to Billy because he's such, such a wonderful teacher and such a fantastic coach that I was really fortunate to share an office with him. We had a lot of laughs. I learned a lot. And, uh, you know, it was, it, was, it was a real blessing for me to be able to do that and have that education for a guy that has accomplished so much.
4: Now, Craig, I want to go, you know, a little bit different situation when you coached, of course, because, you know, in the early 2000s, the orders, you know, the the, the back before the salary cap, you know, you're pushing a rock uphill with a $40 million payroll and the top teams had an $80 million payroll and you kept trying to beat Dallas and and get over that hump. Um, When you see the Toronto Maple Leafs, you know, a team that's been very good in the regular season, but they haven't been able to get past the first round. And really they haven't been able to get past game seven or elimination games in the first round as a coach, how would, how would you approach that? What do you think has to change for that team? How much of that is mental and how can a coach help get over that hurdle?
3: Oh, I I don't think it's mental at all with Toronto. I think it's situational. Totally. Last year when they played Montreal, I mean it, it it was such a wild series that really the nothing went wrong for Toronto through the first four or five games. And uh even the loss they had in game six, they totally dominated the game. So it, it just it was situational, so there wasn't a situation that occurred in that series against Montreal that the coaching staff would have said, okay, we got to make adjustments because everything was really working. It was a weird series uh, till it didn't work in game seven. I mean, game seven would have been the series where you or the game where you made adjustments because everything other than that, you know, you had to be pretty pleased on how it was going from a Toronto standpoint. So that was a really weird series. And I watched that series pretty hard. Um, Now, Tampa, I mean, they're two time Stanley Cup champions. I mean, you have an unbelievable year. You win a lot of games for the right to play the team that's won two Stanley Cups in a row and is just loaded up at the trade deadline and arguably the best goalie in the league. And Toronto, I thought, played great. I mean, they stayed with them right blow for blow with the the best team in the game. And uh, so, I mean, I feel I'm empathetic. I used to be a Toronto hater for a lot of years, but I've gotten over that. I I, I, I actually cheer for Toronto now uh, at times and was cheering for them in the playoffs because... I've got empathy for their organization. I think they've done a lot of things right. And they did a great job last year adding depth players uh, to, to their organization, bunting, uh, camp, cache. I mean, th- th- those were great ads. So they've done a lot of great things. Um, I feel empathetic to them because the, the media and the fan base and those I mean the question that Steve Simmons asked um Kyle or uh, uh
4: the head coach in Toronto
3: yeah Sheldon Keith yeah, Sheldon Keith, the question he asked Sheldon Keith, how can you start your worst defenseman uh in the first shift of the game? I mean to me <clears throat> it's amazing that the media rallies behind that type of question i mean and and they, they support Steve Simmons' right to ask that type of question. But to me, it's totally disrespectful of the, the, the game, the player, the people. I mean, it's just, it, it's just wrong. And you have to deal with that stuff there as a coach. And, uh, you know, I'm empathetic for, for Brendan Shanahan, Kyle Dubas, uh, Sheldon Keith. Uh, because I, I think they do a good, a good job under extreme pressure filled situations. the problem with coaching has always been the same thing it 's so friggin easy to criticize and so friggin difficult to do and you take everything that a coach does well for granted, and you poke away at any uh, Shortcomings, perceived shortcomings, and I mean, it's it's tough. Everybody's got a, a an opinion. It's not necessarily an educated opinion, but everybody has an opinion.
4: Now, Craig, you you coached in tough games, and, and the Battle of Alberta game one, uh, something we've never seen actually in the Battle of Alberta. Fifteen combined goals. Uh, the previous most was a uh, was twelve um, back in nineteen eighty three, and it was. It was not a great game by any of the goaltenders on the ice. Uh, I thought the order's defensive zone play obviously was not close to, to up to par. But in the in the 2006 Stanley Cup Finals, you lost a heartbreaking game one. And then you kind of got spanked in game two. So you, you have tough games as a coach. Like, how do you bounce back? How quickly do you look at that game? You're disappointed, but then be like, like, I don't have time to be disappointed. So how do you control your emotions as a coach after a frustrating loss like that?
3: Well, everybody's looking at the coach to provide uh, the insight and the guidance to change it. And you have to come up with a plan. You've, it's gotta, the plan has to have credibility. It's got to be backed up by uh, video at times on things that you need to do. And in a leadership position, you have to, you have to deliver a strategic message to the team after a loss. You you just have to, it's part of the job. And so everybody can get their teeth into it. Okay. That's what we're going to do. That's, that's what we have to change. This will change the result, you know, and you, you, uh, sell it to your group. However, you have to, whether you bring in the leaders or, and you get everybody on the same page and that's, it's, I mean, that's part of being, uh, the leadership part of being the coach. And that's, that's, I enjoyed that part of it is uh, you know, tactical changes and so forth that uh, the players can get their teeth into execute and then turn the, turn the results around.
4: I'm sure you've coached games where you're just, you can tell right away, man, the guys don't have it here tonight and you keep waiting for it to come. And like the orders in game one, right from the get go, they, they weren't crisp that they were not great in the, in the defensive zone. That's obvious. But they managed somehow to tie that game at six, despite being vastly outplayed. And now all of a sudden it's a new game, yet the same problems emerged after. Can you tell as a coach some games that it's just, well, we don't have it. And I know obviously you keep fighting to try to get it, but take us through the mind and the emotion of a head coach in a game where the team just isn't playing up to their capabilities because they went from two great defensive games to looking like they didn't know how to play defense.
3: Yeah that was uh that that was you know mind-blowingly bad to start that game obviously I think in the first 5 minutes for sure the first 4 minutes the only completed pass I saw was from Mike Smith yeah like they did not complete one pass and in four minutes of hockey, I, I don't think there was not one clean movement of the puck. On the penalty kill, I think Archibald turned back in the offensive zone about four and a half minutes in and fired a pass back that went tape to tape to, it might have been Duncan Keith at the time. But it, it was bizarre. And uh, I mean, I just, Calgary had their foot on the throttle the whole game. When, I mean, when they got disinterested, the Oilers got back in the game. And then they got interested again and slapped them around. And it, it was, yeah, I mean, you talked about the defensive zone coverage. When you're going soft to the outside in the defensive zone with two guys, you're, you're screwed. There's all kinds of holes in much more dangerous areas than the ones you're tippy-toeing into. And they, they lacked assertiveness in the defensive zone. The gap was bad. The puck movement was atrocious. And you get the type of result that we saw uh, in, in game one. I mean, as a coach, I would have rather just continued to get blown out if I was Jay Woodcroft. Because I don't want anybody thinking we were close to winning that game. And th- there's got to be, you know, Jay, Jay will be all over this today. And uh, there's, there's lots of video, visual evidence of things that they did wrong. Um, but, I mean, it's two games in a row in Calgary, right? Nine goals each game. I mean, that's that's a trend. And yeah. can, can we stop them? That's that's the uh, that's the question I have going into Game
4: Um, uh, Two. One last one about the NHL playoffs, Greg. I want to get your thoughts. Uh, The the Colorado Avalanche have just looked dominant uh, so far. They're they're five and zero. You know, they they controlled Nashville. They controlled St. Louis. They're they're such a well balanced team. They got great speed. They got elite offensive talent. Then you throw in Kale McCarr, who can attack you uh, from anywhere. Um, How would you, as a coach, What, what would you try
3: to game plan to slow down the apps? Well, I I would have as many guys above the puck as possible. If you can't get to the four check, you, you, you have to have five guys above that. puck, And otherwise there's going to be huge gaps, huge seams for the puck to be moved through for guys to skate through. And, and they're going to kill you on the rush with their speed and you've got to play more of a defensive tactical game. I mean, you, you don't, you, you want to get to the four check when you can, because that's where you got to spend a lot of your time is in their zone. But if you can't get there, you need guys above the puck. You can't have three forwards chasing the play back through the neutral zone and expect the win.
4: Craig, we always like to wrap up with uh, rapid fire. The only rule is uh, you have to answer the question. Okay. We'll start with some uh, easy to. ones. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. So we always try to f- have a few uh, ones where make you think. So
3: what are the, what are the, uh, what are the uh, consequences if you don't ask the question?
4: Well, uh, we, we send actually uh, Frank Saravalli comes to your house. So, I oh. don't, uh, and he's a Philly
3: guy. So you want to yeah. be uh, leery of that. Be he, leery of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, <laughs> yeah. Frank's a scary guy. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, no, uh,
4: we'll, we'll start with the, an easy one, Craig. Of all the teammates you played with, who do you think would have been the best coach who didn't coach?
3: Uh, Messier. Did you ever ask him why he didn't coach? He had an opportunity to coach. I think it just didn't fit him at the time. And uh, I, I always thought he would have been a, an excellent coach, and I still do.
4: Did, uh, were you ever on the receiving end of, uh, of one of Messier's uh, infamous conversations with a teammate to ensure they were playing better?
3: No. Folklore. <laughs> it, it, it didn't happen often. Okay. I mean, Mark's leadership was more, uh, a, a, a respect thing than, than a, uh, threatening thing. I mean, everybody loved Mark cause he had such a great time. He was, a lot of fun. He knew he had the great balance of when to crank it up and when to have some fun. Uh, people wanted to please Mark, and I think that's that was uh, that 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 was his leadership. I think.
4: What was so uncomfortable for you about wearing a helmet?
3: Just the heat. I mean, I remember the one time I put the helmet on the first game of the regular season, and. I was uh, throwing up behind the bench. Just you release a lot of heat through your head, and if you're not used to having that helmet on, it's a it's a problem.
4: Did you find when you were you know near the end and you were the only guy without a helmet, were other players respectful of that?
3: I think so. I mean, I I think so. No, like I didn't mind whacking a guy over the head with my stick if he had a helmet on, but I I'd be you know, I, I, I don't think I would do that with a guy that didn't wear helmet. <laughs> Which player
4: did got under your skin the most during your career and why?
3: Huh? I mean, I didn't love Claude Lemieux. I don't think anybody did back in those days. He was, he was a pain. Tony Granado, he and I went at it a lot. Um, Joel Otto, as I mentioned earlier, those guys, uh, Tim Waters, I hated, played, played for, played for LA, but a few, yeah, those guys.
4: Uh, when you got into coaching, Craig, which coach did you feel like the, the in-game adjustments was the best challenge for you early in your
3: career? Coaching against? Yeah. I always had a lot of respect for Dave Tippett. When he coached for Dallas, he, 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 he was point counterpoint. Uh, I mean, it was always a tactical battle against Dave. I mean, it seemed like hitch when he was in Dallas, you know, we were making the adjustments. He wasn't because he didn't need to. (laughs)
4: Yeah. Fair enough. Um, how disappointing was it as the head coach to go from the Stanley cup final to then you lose your all-star defenseman? Like, did you really have to be a, a, a purveyor of positivity to start the 06, 07 season, maybe unlike any other season of your career as a coach?
3: Well, the one thought I have now is we should have tried to keep that team together somehow. And I don't know whether we could have, but we were so close that we, we lost quite a few guys off that team at the end of the year. I I, I don't think we could have been able to keep it together, but we should have, we, we could have really tried to propose it. I mean, Kevin was dealing with Chris Pronger. It didn't seem like there was a lot of leeway for him to come back at that time. So that, that, that hurt. But uh, some of the other guys we should have, we should, we should have tried to retain.
4: You mentioned earlier that you learned a lot. Uh, You were surprised about coaching how difficult it was. What about being a GM? What was uh, what was your eye opening moment as a GM? What caught you off guard?
3: Oh, just the 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 meetings with I mean the people walking through your door with the latest greatest idea that 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 you have to have, and you're falling behind the rest of the league because they have this uh, whether it's Something to do with uh, with conditioning, nutrition, uh, analytics—another way to measure and do something that is going to turn your franchise around. And just how long those meetings were. And I always would, okay, let's draw the link from this, whatever you're selling, to performance. How do you draw? How is this going to? functionally make us perform better as a team. And that that's when it kind of got quiet in those meetings. And then at the start I tried to do the right thing and you know help people and negotiate their contracts and, and that was just a total waste of time. Because everybody's negotiating their contract. Like, it's the last contract in the world. And uh you know I tried to be accommodating at the start. And then I realized that, you know, it's just going to be a never ending push till I say that's it. And so I came to that's it pretty quickly.
4: Okay. Um, Favorite golf course you
3: played? Pebble beach for sure. I never could answer that question quickly till I played pebble.
4: Who would be your ultimate, uh, th- uh, if you're in the foursome, who's the other three that you would want to
3: golf with? Well, I've already played with them. i played in my ultimate foursome. Who's that? Wayne Gretzky, Kevin Lowe, and Tiger Woods. Oh, How was Tiger? He was great. Yeah, it was great. We played at Rio Seco in, uh, in Vegas and played. Uh, this was before Tiger had his fall from grace. He was working with Butch Harmon there, and uh, we played at Rio Seco. And so we both get up, we all get up on the first tee. I'm riding with Kevin, Gretz is riding with Tiger. And uh, so Kevin, who can hit the ball a long way, is a lefty, and he crushed his on the first tee. And uh, Tiger hit his, and Kevin gets it. Kevin and I get in the golf cart, and Kevin says, I think I hit it by Tager, he calls him. I think I hit it by Tager. <laughs> well, Tager was about 30 yards by him uh, on the fairway, but he was serious. He thought he hit it by Tager.
4: <laughs> <laughs> what, what impressed you most about being up close and watching Woods
3: when you played golf with him? What how well he could see the ball. Like, it was amazing how that guy could hit it. 350 yards and see it approach the pin like I, I just couldn't believe the eyesight on the guy it was incredible did he give you any golf tips no but one hole I made a bogey and he made a double bogey and he was putting his tee in the, in the, in the uh, on the tee box I said I think I'm up tagger <laughs> <laughs> did he laugh uh, yeah, he laughed. Yeah, he took his Ugh. tea out and said, "How about it?" Then I pulled it in the ditch. <laughs> yeah, look, well, Craig, uh, we really appreciate
4: your time um, today. Uh, now, would you, uh, we've got a, a lot of people that asked me when they told me you're coming on? Would you, you're an analyst now on Sportsnet? Would you have any interest? Would you like to get into coaching again?
3: Yeah, given the right opportunity, I would. I enjoy it. Um, I don't know in what capacity, um, but I would enjoy getting back into it in the right situation.
4: And it wouldn't, wouldn't, it wouldn't have to be as a head coach to be assistant coach too. Yeah. Or only head.
3: coach. Yeah. I, I, at this point, it's probably more fun being an assistant coach <laughs> than a head coach, especially in this crazy market dealing with you guys.
4: Uh, well, Craig, as always, we appreciate your time. Uh, enjoy the rest of the playoffs.
2: Okay. Jason. Thanks.
4: Greg McTavish, and you can tell, Frank, uh, he still watches the game rather closely as a coach.
2: Details are incredible, you know, down to the second. It's amazing to see how closely he's watching that.
4: Well, Frank, um, uh, despite the snow, although it'll be brief, it's not going to stick around. Um, what, what do you honestly think? I know you and I are probably in the same boat. It's, it's going to be tough for him to come back and win the series with the injuries. But what are you expecting in Carolina tonight? Because they didn't like their game. And in Calgary, in the seas tonight.
2: Yeah, I would think that um, Carolina, you know, they're going to be better. And that's, that's the only tough part for the Rangers is I'd expect more of in game two, what we saw in the third period, which was uh, Carolina really imposing their will and playing their game, their style of game that was missing for the first two periods of game one. And then I would say in, uh, in Edmonton, Calgary, I I have no doubt the Oilers are going to be cleaner. Uh, they got pushed around big time in game one. I would say their, their physicality needs to be a lot better. I think it will be. Uh, I didn't, we didn't even talk about the runs that the flames took at Connor McDavid. Like that was, that was pretty significant. And, and I thought the way the Oilers, even the way they squirmed out of the end of game one it didn't leave anyone with a confident feeling I would imagine in Edmonton. So gotta be ready.
4: The Calgary flames top six forwards received one hit in game one. One. And those are the guys who had the puck on the other side. The order's top six guys who were on the receiving end of 10 hits, mainly McDavid Hyman and dry And so to me, if you're not going to, if you're not going uh, to respond and be aggressive on the other team's guys who have the puck, you got no chance. So uh, the orders uh, to me, I think it's gut check time tonight, Frank, and uh, quickly, any surprises for you all week long in the NHL uh, player awards that have so far been announced for finalists?
2: No, I don't. I don't think so. They were mostly sort of right in the wheelhouse of where I was voting uh, more or less. Um, I don't know. It's interesting to hear Daryl Sutter's comments about the Jack Adams saying he, he thinks it should go to a guy that's been wronged or robbed in his career previously. He mentioned Gerard Gallant and the way he was fired in Vegas and Florida. Um, Gallant has no doubt done a great job. I just don't, you know, other than, maybe Carolina with Rob Brindermore. I don't know one team that plays to more of an identity of their coach than the flames and to go from where they were last year to be a non-playoff team to win the division this year. It's Daryl Sutter's award in my opinion.
4: Now that's fair. I do think the lightning though, they, they, they reflect John Cooper because they just seem poised all day. Maybe
2: in temperament. Yeah. But yeah. not, he's not an X's and O's guy. So that's not taking anything away from me. He's one of the best coaches in the game. So much of this, this job is, is being a psychologist. Yeah. Um, but that's the other weird part about the award is that not always the best coach to win it wins it. It's almost like the coach that's most improved or whose team is most improved. And, and yet there's some really good coaches that don't,
4: yeah, there have been some awards where, like, the Masterton now, it seems like, oh, if you come off an injury, you're automatic. And I'm not sure I agree with that completely. Um, you know, I, I, there's different things. And we'll get, that's a really good uh, off-season pod to get into to discuss uh, some kind of things that, that follow certain awards around. And is that necessarily the best way? So we'll have fun. I'm looking forward to a weekend of games uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. When we talk on Monday, Frank, we could have a, a much different view of the NHL playoffs. So enjoy the snow. We'll see you at the rink. Thanks for listening to the
2: DFO rundown. With Sarah and Gregor. Keep it locked on dailyfaceoff.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts from to
3: never miss an episode delivered by DoorDash.
5: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.